Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 6th, 2018. We are up to episode 2340 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and since we are on our regularly scheduled programming, it's a listener call show. This is where you pick up the phone and call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Uh, or you uh, can go to the speak pipe and leave us a message there. I found there's a lot of messages in the speak pipe, so if you used it this last week, even though I said you get priority, you may not hear yourself on the air just because, well, there was more there than I realized. Uh, but I'll tell you what, if you call a uh, call in, you know, 90% or more of calls eventually get on the air. It is a better way to get on the show uh, than sending an email. Not that emails are bad, it's just that there's less calls, so your odds are higher. Here's what we got today. Great group of high-variety calls. I'm not going down any one vein here. Uh, we have a guy that found a bunch of uh, vinyl sign material for free, made wicking beds. Now he's worried about PVC leaching. I'm not. I'll tell you why. Uh, little call on using junk or salvage eye to make or save money. What is junk eye or salvage eye? Now, as a teenager, I learned all about this. I've told stories before about how I cut copper out of old motors to... Uh, to pay for my car, totally legally, by the way, you know, no, 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 still, no, no. But my, well, I had a friend named Mike. We all called him, of course, what? Mikey, right? Northeast United States teenagers, Mikey. Well, Mikey always used to be like, back off with that junk eye, because I mean, I'd be looking at everything, like, I wonder if I could do the. And, and when you have that, you can you can find opportunities where others don't see them. Uh, more on reviving communities with hybrid cash slash local currency models. Uh, what to do with surplus fruit from trees when you've gone keto. Uh, how to establish a market for agricultural products or change an existing one. Putting together a full kitchen knife set for under 200 bucks. And cooking a holiday turkey in advance versus half-assing it. Yeah, that's the only way that I can describe what this guy wanted to do. He called in for Thanksgiving. The call got missed and buried somehow, but... Yeah, Christmas is coming. A lot of people also do a Christmas turkey, and I thought this would be beneficial for folks. So I have a quick little suggestion at the end of the show today for if you have to make a turkey and you don't have all day on whatever turkey day you're talking about to make that turkey, don't microwave it. I'm not sure if this is a serious call or a joke, but uh, I'll give my thoughts on it. Before we do that, let's take a look at the year in history. We're going back to the year 1865. What happened on this day in 1865? Slavery was officially banned in the United States for all intents and purposes forever because it would take a constitutional amendment to change that because on this day in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution officially ending the institution of slavery is ratified. It reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. I have a link to the full write-up on History Channel. I just want to kind of point something out here. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862 banned slavery in all of the places that the Union did not control, the South, making the war about slavery. 
and giving the northern states a cause. There were actually states within the north that had slavery, and the Emancipation Proclamation did not end slavery in those areas. Um, additionally, when the war was over, it still didn't, and all the slaves in the south had been freed uh, at the end of the war due to the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, slavery had been, you know, efficiently, I guess, uh, by, by de facto kind of gone uh, in, in, in all of the United States before this amendment. Lincoln wanted an amendment and, and a, a, a rousing Republican victory uh, in his re-election assured the ability to get the amendment passed um, because he wanted to make sure that it could never come back. And I don't want to get into a Civil War history lesson here. I don't want to get into was it a Civil War, was it a war between the states. I want to put all that on the shelf for this particular little history segment here. And I want to talk about what the purpose of the constitutional amendment really is. It's the restriction of government. Now, there have been amendments that have empowered government, and there have been amendments that have empowered individuals. Uh, when you empower government, when you empower individuals, you effectively restrict government. So when a group of people, for instance, was given the right to vote that didn't previously have it, even though you were empowering people who didn't previously have a right or a privilege, you're effectively restricting government's ability to prevent them from doing it. You get that, right? The reason women couldn't vote before suffrage was because government said they couldn't. Got it? Okay? So, in my opinion, in my opinion, this is not a fact, this is my opinion, amending the Constitution should exist for only one real purpose, restricting government. That's it. That's about the only thing I'm okay with, and giving people a right that other people already have that is restricting government. Um, and the reason we need to do that is because effectively no government can restrict a future government. So let's say Congress and the Senate got together and passed a law uh, enacting term limits. On, on congressmen and uh, senators, representatives and senators. And because it's something very, very uh, popular in, 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 the, in the country right now. Uh, it's something like over 80% of people, regardless of political affiliation, support the idea of some sort of term limits for Congress. Let's say they said um, representatives can serve no more than, uh, they didn't even say six terms for 12 years. And we restricted uh, senators to the same 12 years with two terms at six uh, years a term. And everybody agreed. And all the Congress clowns and, uh, voted yes, 100% in the House and 100% in the Senate. It never happened. Pipe dream it does, and Trump signs it. Okay, It doesn't really prevent future governments from having not having term limits. Because all a future government then has to do is pass another law. And once they pass a law, they only need what? 51 senators and, and, a, and a couple, you know, uh, uh, congressmen in the majority. And effectively, with rules changes and all, they can run that through. And if the president's okay with it, they can get it done. Where a constitutional amendment requires three quarters of the states. Now, do you think you can get three quarters of the states on board with removing something like term limits from federal Congress and federal senators? And the answer is probably not. It's not that a, a constitutional amendment can't be changed. We talked about um, prohibition 
Prohibition eventually was, you know, it was a amendment to the Constitution, and then it was amended by amendment. So it, it, it has happened, but it's, it's, it's difficult. And I will point something out. The only amendment to our Constitution to ever be undone by a future amendment was one that gave government more power. It's one that gave government more power. It turns out that when you effectively restrict government permanently, changing that is difficult. It's almost like, in spite of the fact that people seem to run toward enslavement in many ways, in their hearts they really know that they're better off if government is restricted and they have more freedom. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hey, Jack, how you doing? My name's Garrett. I'm in sunny South Florida. Um, I have access to a lot of uh, old vinyl large signs, and I actually made a pretty killer wicking bed out of it. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about heat and summer. Um, are we going to have leaching? Am I going to have to worry about, you know, PVC coming out of it and all that kind of stuff? I uh, really look forward to your answer. Thanks again for all that you do. Talk to you soon, man. Have a great day. Uh, the short answer is no with a contingency of, well, probably not. Uh, so let's talk about this. You can cause some leaching from PVC with heat, uh, a lot of heat. Uh, not that the Florida sun in the right circumstances wouldn't be capable of gaining enough uh, heat to, uh, to cause an issue uh, under ideal circumstances for heat, but... Uh, if you were to reach the temperatures necessary for heat to cause leaching from your PVC, uh, your plants would be dead anyway. So that's a number one reason. The number two reason is the main thing that causes PVC's structure to break down, causing it to become brittle and subject to leaching uh, in practice. There's other things that can do it, but in, in actual reality is UV light. So the, the sun on, on it long term, uh, more so than the heat, the actual light. So if you try this, for instance, if you uh, have to work on some PVC plumbing, uh, outdoor irrigation in a system, and you have a piece of pipe that's stubbed up out of the ground and subjected to UV radiation, it's been there for a couple of years, and you have to cut it. Uh, a lot of times when you use one of the uh, ratchet-style uh, cutters, as you cut into it, it'll get to a certain point and it'll shatter. Uh, it may even become difficult to get a nice clean cut on it. You may have to resort to using something like a saw or something like that to be able to do it uh, because it does become so brittle, and that is because of the PVC, again, breaking down and becoming brittle. However, I've dug up pipe that's been in the ground for 10 years, and when you put a pair of cutters on it, it cuts you know, like a brand-new piece of pipe. It cuts nice and clean because it's protected from UV. So if you built wicking beds out of this stuff, I'm assuming that the part that's actually holding water in and uh, whatnot is, is covered up with dirt. Um, now, if you have the, let's say you've dug a hole in the ground and lined it like a pond uh, and then somehow created a way that it can seep out the sides uh, and the pieces that are sticking out of the ground, those could possibly UV and heat related and then leach some back into your soil. But I would just say, you know, Trim off anything that is exposed and go on with your life and don't worry about it. I, I just I think that's a great uh, reuse of materials. And um, depending on where you're getting the material from and what its original purpose was, um, if anything that's been used, designed to be used outside, is generally treated to be highly UV resistant anyway. Uh, and and you might find that some of that stuff is uh, 
is is not even PVC. It may actually be another material. So um, I I just wouldn't worry about it. Now, if somebody was using it to make a pond and the water was going to be in constant contact with it and the water temperature might get up into the high 90s or higher over long durations and that water might also become somewhat acidic, it's possible, but I still even wouldn't worry that much about that. I, I would go on with your life and, you know, the consideration would be Uh, long duration exposure to UV or extremely high heat uh, for what you're doing with it. I just don't see it being a problem. Anybody's got any thoughts on that one or any other ideas for what to do with this material? Hey, let us know on the show notes for episode 2340. Looks like another one. Hey, Jack. It's Tyler in Utah. Uh, I have a, a comment on the greenhouse materials that you've been talking about lately. Um, I was driving by a Walmart this uh, last summer. And they were switching out the double-sided, I don't know if it's polycarbonate or what, but the uh, the greenhouse uh, material that they use on the outdoors, uh, I've seen them at like Lowe's, Home Depot, <clears throat> excuse me, and other big box stores. They were switching those out. They had those panels. They were probably six feet by 30 feet uh, just sitting on the side of the building. I walked in, asked them, hey, what are you guys doing with those? And they were throwing them away. I said, can I have them? So uh rented a U-Haul, took home what I wanted, pictured the, the panels that I wanted to keep. I uh, got on a, a Craigslist uh, here in Utah, put the others up for sale, made some money off it, and, and had a good greenhouse out of it as well. So uh, just a tip to those that are looking to build a, a greenhouse, there's a good way to get some free panels. Thanks, Jack. See you. So I just kind of want to encourage people, you know, we often talk about things like, you know, paying attention to Craigslist. There's actually technology tools that allow you to do things like run a specific search for a certain item on a Craigslist in your local area and then be alerted whenever that item shows up. If you've ever wondered how sometimes like, hey, that looks like a good deal and it was just posted like five minutes ago and what, I can try to contact the guy and it's already gone, how that happens. Sometimes it's happenstance, but a lot of times it's people that that's what they're doing. They're actively looking for Craigslist stuff. Uh, and, and that's good, but a lot of that stuff that, that's out there never sees Craigslist and or anything similar to that. So just situational awareness and paying attention. If you see a department store and there's a bunch of people piling anything up, there's a good possibility that that stuff can be had for little to no money. Um, sometimes some stores make a really big deal out of depreciation uh, and, and depreciating it to basically almost no value so they can write it off before they get rid of it. So they will ask you for a dollar for it. I've gotten some pretty cool stuff for a dollar, and that's I don't know if they really need to do that, but that's the story that I've always been given. Well, we'll sell it to you for a dollar, and that way we can put it down on the books and depreciate it down to a dollar. Okay, whatever. I don't know. Fine. Here's a dollar. So, you know, um, a lot of things that you can get are things that you wouldn't really think about shelving. A lot of times you can get. Um, I've seen people get some really high end shelving, uh, but look around and and you know, every once in a while, kind of think about that. You know, I know it's fake. Okay, all these shows, all the reality TV shows are not reality, but they're they're there's some they're they're based on fact. Like, so Pawn Stars is fake, 
But there are pawn stores, and basically the way you see things happen on pawn stores is the way that pawn stores operate, except people don't take first edition signed copies of Edgar Allan Poe's works to a pawn shop, for God's sakes. Okay, They don't take something that belonged to George Washington to a pawn shop. But pawn shops work the way you see that work on, 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 on pawn stars. So the show Pickers is a good example of what can be done when somebody is willing to take a drive to the country and just look around. See what, and when you see a big pile of stuff laying somewhere, and if you can look from a distance before you go bother the person and say, there's some stuff there I might be interested in, and go up and knock on a door or what have you and say, hey, uh, you know, I pick up stuff off the road, and uh, I was wondering if maybe we could take a look at some of this, if you'd be interested in selling any of it. The worst thing I can tell you is no. You know, Now, I will, I will warn you this about certain places. You will see places that, like, right in the front of the house, they have a no trespassing sign. Uh, a lot of times those people mean it for anybody, including people who knock on their door and say hello. So do you know, do you use some modicum of common sense with this? Most people, like, when they have stuff like that laying around, and you'll meet the, and that, again, it shows fake, but there's a lot of reality. You'll meet the old guy, oh, no, I, I can't let any of that stuff go. You know, uh, And if you talk to his wife, he's been keeping that shit since 1964, and all he ever does is add to it. And the uh, other thing about that show that's real is you'll see the guy like, oh, I don't know, you know, and he'll be like, well, do you know where the other piece of this is? Oh, yeah, and he'll like climb up into an attic and way back underneath an old stove, there's this piece that goes to this other thing. And you know, I've met those guys. My great, my grandfather uh, on my dad's side was one of those guys. You know, he could tell you he, there was crap, and that's part of what I loved about their place, was going through all the old crap and looking at it. But if you're like, well... And he had a still, right? A fuel still. Of it. And it was like, I figured out how it worked. And he had a condenser. It was basically copper tubing wrapped around the inside of an old bu galvanized bucket. And then there's the top of the still. And then well, the, 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 the still has to get to the bucket. And you know, Oh, well, you know, I, some of that line, I, I sold that for scrap back in the day. and But the, the fittings are, you know, and, and they're in his drawer. And he knew where it was. So... My, my point here with all of that nostalgia is, you know, keep an eye for things that are available. A great example of this is a buddy of mine named Triple, long-time listener to the show, has been to a lot of our workshops, stuff like that. Didn't make it this last time around, uh, but really cool dude. And uh, the great big 4 by 4 fiberglass tubs that I'm building this aquaponics system in my, you know, kind of my display system on uh, – Those were tubs for feeding molasses to cattle. He found them exactly that way. He's driving around, looks, sees a big stack of this stuff, goes and talks to the guy, goes, yeah, we used to use those for you know feeding molasses cattle. We really don't use them anymore, and nobody really uses them anymore. And, well, you want to sell them? Ah, I'd sell them for 30 bucks a piece. He contacts me and says, would these make good wicking beds? I'm like, hell yes, they would. And I'm like, well, how much? He says, they're 30 bucks. And there was a bunch of them, and I said, I'll, I'll take 10 of them. So he was able to get that price, I think, because he could take all of them, you know. So um, there's always opportunities. And then the opportunity is, can I do something with this? Or can I can I effectively market this better than the guy whose marketing is leaving it on the side of the road or having it in a pile behind the barn? And the answer is probably yes. And can I, can I then convert this to money to do other things with? And th this is right in line with the show we did yesterday on entrepreneurship. And it's amazing what you can get your hands on. And I know people that care about this way more than I do. 
And some of the stuff I'll hear from them, like, I can get this. Do you want it? I'm like, what? How do you get, you know, and I get this for like 30 bucks or whatever. Uh, a buddy of mine, the, the guy that does all our cooking here with his wife, Teresa, Michael, uh, was able to get uh, greenhouse high tunnel frames for next to nothing out East Texas. And he wanted, did you, you ask me if I wanted any? I'm like, I can't put anything in the ground here. I'm not renting a jackhammer to do that. But I, I think a lot of people got, you know, basically, you know, thousand dollar high tunnels for like 30 bucks or something when he found those so use that junk salvage eye you can be surprised at what you can find and, and how you can turn a profit with it one way or another let's take another call hey jack follow up on your uh local currency u.s dollar discussion uh dollar tree has whiteboards for one dollar so if you just were to take whatever stamp you get made and then either have it stamped on the board or get a sticker and you buy those little $1 whiteboards, you just walk in and go, here, all you have to do is put this up, and basically anyone who comes in, whatever you have up there, you know, that's the special for the week or the discount for the week or what you're offering free, be it a diner, be it, hey, 20 bucks off your oil change if you use a uh, local dollar, whatever. Um, but I think there, you know, and, That makes it really simple, especially for uh, those who don't have technology. They don't have to worry about websites. Whatever they put up on that board is just the special for the local currency, the local buck. Um, but I think that's a really great idea, and I might even look at trying to do that myself. Thanks, Jack. Uh, the main reason I played that is I have seldom done anything as far as a suggestion from an audience member that has sparked so much follow-up. This is probably the fifth or sixth follow-up uh, that we've had on this. It's made it on the air. There's been a bunch on the blog and stuff. And for those that missed it, the idea was basically that you take U.S. dollars, cash, uh, and you stamp them with a special stamp, uh, maybe even a, a number on them, so that they, or you record the serial numbers to prevent counterfeiting, though I don't think counterfeiting would be that big of an issue with something like this. And then you call them, you know, if you lived in Sheboyganville, Sheboyganville bucks. And unlike something like Ithaca Hours, which uh, is a really, you know, it gets talked about a lot. It's not very successful, guys. It's just, you know, it just isn't. Um, where it's a it's an actual local currency that's not it's not fungible. It can't go outside of Ithaca, and it will only be taken by people in Ithaca that take Ithaca Hours. Um, you're taking U.S. currency and just putting a mark on it. And the, the point is to get that currency to stay and move and continue to recycle through a community because when you keep money in a community, uh, it's better than having money leave a community. You want to be in an import community, not an export community, when it comes to capital. And it drives loyalty to local businesses and stuff like that. And most businesses that operate because the person running it has an effing clue what they're doing, have some room in the margin for some sort of a special. You know, get a free piece of pie with dinner at a diner, 5% off all orders, you know, uh, Fridays you get a free slice of pizza, whatever. You know, any kind of local business you can think of, there's probably something that they could offer if you use this local currency now. But unlike a... Ithaca hour style currency, if you have to go down the street and buy spark plugs at the auto shop and they don't do anything, then 
you may wish to save that for something else, but if it's the money you have right now, you can spend it. It's usable. And if, if, if somebody has to go out of town and takes it with them, which kind of you know, is in, flies in the face of the, the concept, they can do it. And here's the interesting thing. Because they can, they won't, but they'll take the money. That's, that's the thing, right? They'll, no one will have a problem using it, but since it's worth more in their community, I would say no one, but most of the money is going to stay in the community. And since it's just U.S. currency, it can be replaced for the cost of, for nothing, for the cost of the stamp. Because you can go down to the bank with a $20 bill and they'll give you 21s. And you can stamp those 21s and add them into your system. People on Facebook have been talking about, well, how do you monetize this? And I think the reason we really didn't talk about that yet is because the person that started this whole thing is not trying to monetize the thing. They're trying to revitalize their little town. They're trying to grow their little town in a sane way. They don't want it to become a big city. They don't want it to become overrun. They don't want to double the population, but they like people that actually want to stick around. Uh, they actually want to bring in, you know, they want the town to grow at a slow, moderate rate and be kind of, kind of a hip place for people to go to. And, uh, so, It can be done with a mission attitude. I think that if somebody was running a website and said, hey, look, this is what we'll do. We'll come in here. We'll give you 100 or 50, you know, depending on how many you know, people you can get on board with this, dollars stamped. And so there's 50 bucks of your money back. And for 100 bucks, we'll put you on the website, set you up, you know, mention that you're, you, know, you take this. And then the stamp... You had a URL so that people that saw that bill could go see all the places they can use it, you know, and maybe you charge them, you know, whatever you can a year to maintain that with them. Uh, and the more you can do to, to make setting them up mean something, the better. And, and I think the way that you kind of have to prime that pump, though, is you have to go in and get four or five, you know, keystone businesses to be part of this, and maybe they don't pay anything. Because when it's like, well, who else does this? And, you know, let's say uh, it, where I lived, I mentioned an auto parts store. Where I grew up in, in Minersville, Pottsville area, Pennsylvania. In Minersville, uh, Schumax Automotive was like where everybody went for parts. Like if you, if you went over to Pottsville, you might go to Pep Boys. There was a Pep Boys over there. But, like, no one would drive from, from, from Minersville to Pottsville. And by the way, I used to make that ride on my bike in about 15 minutes. I'm just not saying it wasn't a big ride. But no, see, people wanted to go to, if you lived in Minersville, you went to Schumacher's because that's, that was the, why would you go give your money to Pep Boys over in Pottsville? Schumacher's has been here for three generations, so you went to Schumacher's. Well, if you were in Minersville and you were doing this there, you'd want to get Schumacher's on board. You know, maybe, and I don't know what, what it is today, but back in the day, the bar all the old coal miners went to was a place called Lazarchik's. And I'll bet you if you had gone there and you got Center Supply was like the hardware store, Schumax Automotive and Lazarchics, and you kind of brought them in for free and said, hey, we want to build this into something. Don't go telling all these people you got in for free. You could have gone around and got every other business in the damn town. Because then you would have went down to, to Rosadvich's Grocery, and they would have said, who's on board? And you would have said, Center Supply, Lazarchics, you know, and Schumax. And they would have went, oh, hell yeah, how much does it cost? 200 bucks. Okay. Now, they didn't have an internet back then, but you still could have figured out how to do it. And I, I think that this can be monetized. I don't know that it's the kind of thing you can make a ton of money at, um, but if you were to set it up for four or five or six small towns, 
and uh, just you know manage that for them, you might be able to make an income off of it sufficient to uh, to at least make it worth doing. Maybe it's a side income, uh, something like that. I don't think you can go in to do something like this, especially once you expand behind beyond your own town uh, and, and really get as much buy-in from people. Like, well, you're from out of town and this is supposed to be about us and whatever. And so you have to be at a price point that they're like, well, that's just so inexpensive and I want to be part of this. Yeah, I'll do that. Because, you know, let's say if you had... A uh, hundred businesses at fifty bucks a year. It's only five thousand dollars a year, and a business not willing to invest fifty bucks into something like this is probably going to be out of business anyway, right? So if you made fifty bucks profit off of a hundred businesses, that's you know that's five grand. It doesn't sound like a lot, but what do you have to do? You know, maybe every once in a while you have to put some money back into the system, but. You know, use their money to do that. If the bills start to dwindle in quantity or get hoarded, um, you can even do that with, I'll tell you what. You, you, I would set it up so your, your, your member businesses uh, vote to expand the currency. If you're part of it, you get a vote. And if they decide to expand the currency and they want to expand the currency by a uh, thousand bills, because they really like the program, well then, if there's a hundred of them, everybody ponies up ten bucks. Now, it doesn't cost them anything, because you stamp them and give them the bills back. You know, um, or you, you know, you deduct, you, you add it to their, your, their charge or whatever. You could even build it. There's a million ways to do it, but I think the idea is solid, and I'm, I'm excited to see somebody grab onto it and really turn it into something and systematize it, because I think that it can really help build communities into stronger communities. Uh, giving people some sense of ownership in their own community, I think, is an awesome idea. Uh, let's take another one. Jack, this is Josh. Hey, I got a conundrum. I'm into permaculture, and I got a food forest here, and most of my property is covered in fruit trees, and now I'm on the keto diet. What do I do? Thanks. Bye. Okay, so there's a few things we can look at here. Number one, you said keto. Now, if you said paleo, I'd say, well, you should be eating you know, some fruit in moderation here and there uh, with paleo. Not all the time, not every day, but in moderation is no problem. Keto is where we are going to not just get into a state of ketosis, we are going to maintain a state of ketosis. And when it comes to straight-up weight loss... Um, the reason Paleo, Primal, uh, Atkins, Protein Power all work is when done to their extreme, they result in ketosis. And ketosis has become a bad word and been used by the uninformed or the, the groups that feel threatened by this, like Big Sugar and Big Ag, etc., uh, and, and big pharma to push back and say, this is bad. Look at Chris ketosis and that kills you and it destroys your kidneys and you die. Bullshit. Bullshit, 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 hairy, hairy ass bullshit. Okay. Um, ketosis simply means we are actively burning fat. Now there is something called ketoacidosis and this is bad and you don't want to get there. And it's something that diabetics worry about happening and prolonged continuous 
ketosis to the point where you have burned all your fat reserves can result in going to a state of ketoacidosis, which you don't want to do. So anybody that's doing a keto diet, this is my statement to them, and you may disagree because you feel great and you're happy with it, but if you're doing it right and you're maintaining a state of ketosis, you should reach a point where you've lost sufficient weight that you need to go into what they would call in protein power a maintenance phase, okay? Uh, in Atkins, a phase two, phase three type situation, where now we're not going to stay in ketosis. Like, I don't think there's a problem with maintaining a state of ketosis while you're overweight. It's just there isn't, because the only thing your body's going to do in that state is go grab fat reserves and burn fat. As you move to a point where you are, you know, lean, not completely lean even, but in that state long term, your body will actually start to burn muscle. And that is not where you want to be. And that is not healthy. And that is not good. And that's how you go into ketoacidosis. So even a person on keto, if you have fruit trees, I wouldn't be like, oh, those fruit trees will never be useful to me. What you're looking for is to maintain your ketosis to a point where you go to a maintenance mode, and then you would be eating a little bit of that fruit in moderation. Now, if you have a whole ass load of fruit trees dropping plums and pears, and uh, you're still never going to use it all. But I'm just saying that you should reach a state where you can enjoy some of it. Um, I'm just saying. Some other things you can do. Now, again, with ketosis, if you want to stay full on in ketosis, you need to be off alcohol. <sighs> Really? Yes, really. Like, if you're, especially more than, let's say, a drink. If you're drinking four or five drinks of alcohol, if you drink alcohol to the point where you feel any of the effects of it, it will, at least for a time, push you clear out of ketosis. Because your body will start metabolizing the alcohol and not have need of metabolizing the fat. So while you're in full-on weight loss mode, you need to be moderate to no alcohol. And by moderate, I would rather you have you drink enough to, to be tipsy on Saturday than drink, you know, modestly five days a week. So this doesn't apply while on ketosis, but as you come out of that and alcohol is a part of what you enjoy, then you have a lot of material to be making meads and wines. So that's another alternative. Um, honestly, I think that being charitable is a good thing, and being charitable with something that doesn't cost you much is a great thing. So I would find a local food bank, and while you have certain things in abundance, I would be donating the surplus that you can't use. The other option is to use this form of nourishment to nourish a thing that can use it better than you so you can eat it as nourishment. So... If you had a great big field full of wonderful grasses and clovers and things like that, you would say, well, that looks pretty, but I can't eat that. But a cow or a goat or a rabbit or a pig can eat that, and then you eat it. Chickens and ducks love fruit. So you may have an opportunity to, to free-range your tractor, poultry, or any other livestock through this environment to use that fruit. Next, if you really have that much of it, it may be a, a financial opportunity. Consider selling it. I mean, those are the, the options that I see here. But just understand, those of you who have gone the ketosis route, yes, for pure weight loss, I defy. I defy anybody 
to show me something that works better. And you can give me two people with the same body type, the same blood type, the same age. They can be freaking identical twins, and you can start them off at the same amount overweight, and you let me put one on and keep them in a ketogenic state. And you put the other, you do whatever you want with the other one, and if, if that person will follow my advice and stay on a ketosis-style diet to the point where they reach their target weight, I will kick your ass from six ways from Sunday. I don't care what you do. And if you're doing low-carb, uh, Atkins, protein power, any of those things, the only reason you'll compete and maybe even tie is because you're doing it so extreme, you're doing what I'm doing. You're going to a ketogenic state. Anything else cannot compete with the rate of weight loss except actual starvation. And if you go on starvation diet, the, the damage done to your organs, to your body, etc. Is, is, is certainly not worth it. Additionally, the rebound weight effect will be far greater. People that lose their weight through a ketogenic style diet generally don't gain a lot of weight unless they go so far off the reservation it's insane. If they start eating birthday cake and cookies for lunch, they will put weight back on very, very quickly. But if they simply transition to a more balanced diet, still saying moderately high in fat, moderate in protein, and low, not restricted, but low in carbohydrate, they'll maintain their weight just fine. One thing we got to look at with, you know, people, well, diets don't work because you go on a diet. Okay, <laughs> they got fat for a reason in the first place. If the behavior got them fat, returning to the same behavior will get them fat again. And, they ha and if the person doesn't correct the problem that created the weight gain in the first place, no matter what diet they use, when they give up, quit, fail, or consider themselves done, they're going to revert because they're an addict, especially if they're an addict to carbohydrates and sugars. You know, if you send somebody to rehab for using heroin and they go back on heroin, people don't aren't, aren't shocked and goes, well, rehab doesn't work. They'll say the person didn't maintain the program, you know, And they went back on heroin, and they're not blaming the heroin, you know, rehabilitation program for the actions of the heroin addict. And that's how you have to look at all diets. Because in the end, I'll tell you this too. I, you know, I can tell you what I think works best, but I'm not going to be in denial of reality, facts, logic, and reason. Almost, not all, but almost every diet, if actually followed, does work. The speed at which they work, the reliability that they work, Those all change, and the speed of rebound when they're quit, and depending on what quit means, changes. But the other thing, and this is why I'm such a fan of the carbohydrate-restricted diets, what is the ability of the average person to maintain that diet long enough to achieve their goals? And when you look at a caloric restriction diet like a Weight Watchers versus a, yeah, we're not really that concerned about calories because they're going to take care of themselves in time if we do this program that's ketogenic in nature, then they, if somebody really wants it, they tend to have an easier time maintaining that because you get to eat a lot of things that taste good. Just my thoughts. Anyway, let's take another one. This one on establishing a market. Hi, Jake. This is James out of Memphis, Tennessee. Quick question for you. What did you do 
to establish the market for your duck eggs when you were doing that on your farmstead. I know you mentioned SEO optimization, you know, building a drive to your website. I currently have a farmstead. I raise quail eggs. I'm producing more than I'm selling right now. And I'm also looking to add on other aspects, pasture poultry, possibly microgreens. And would you do it differently if you had more than just duck eggs going? Any help? Be appreciated. Thank you. Well, let's just start with a, a, a fact when it comes to a market for any agricultural product. The market is established because the market is food. Now, there's niches within markets, but the market you are selling into when you sell any agricultural product, uh, as far as one you can eat anyway, I'm not selling fertilizer, which has its own market, but uh, is food. So you're selling to people who eat, which is everybody. Now, within the niche, you're going to sell to people that care about certain things in certain ways. What we did. Um, we started out by simply advertising on Craigslist. And what we did differently than everybody else is we told our story. We, and again, that's marketing. We explained how our birds were taken care of, what they ate, and what they did. In fact... The, the best thing for me to do, I don't think you'd ask me this question if you'd seen my hour-plus-long presentation on how we marketed and sold our duck eggs, because everything's in there. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes today where I, I, I went through our cost analysis, I went through how we sold, I went through exactly what we wrote in our advertising um, you know, we don't sell anymore, so I changed a lot of things on the website, but my website showed pictures of the ducks, how the ducks were taken care of. Uh, it explained how we did the sunflower sprouts for them every day, how they were rotated, what part they serve in the ecosystem, so that when somebody bought it, they were buying the whole story. So kind of broadening this a little bit, the way that you establish a market is you tell your story sufficiently that people feel compelled by it to want to do business with you, no matter what you're doing. Now, if you were going to do quail eggs and microgreens, what I would do is in, in the beginning, I would simultaneously through totally different doors, not different channels, different doors, market both of them. And I think, honestly, the strongest way to market microgreens as a product is to restaurants. I think it's a hard sell to a person who you don't have any previously existing relationship with. I don't think people are like going, gee, I want to find a place to buy microgreens so I can start adding them to my, my meals and my salads. I, I, I don't think that's a thing. Uh, but there are people out looking for quail's eggs. And you're producing more than you're selling. That's a problem to a degree. The beauty of that is, is you can service the market as you build it. The number one thing that gave us an advantage and selling our duck eggs. When there were people on Craigslist, they'd be selling duck eggs for five bucks a dozen, and we're selling for eight. Buy them from them next week, because they'd sell a glut, and then they had, you know, and somebody's like, "Well, I need eight dozen a month," and that guy couldn't produce eight dozen a month. So having that surplus and being able to service the market is good. Um, so I would try both for the various channels. Because there is the probability that if you can find stores and restaurants with the microgreens, then you can sell them quail's eggs. But if you want to sell to consumers, I would lead with the quail's eggs. And I would come up with unique things. Like, if you're just feeding the cheapest feed you can get to your quail and keeping them in a rack system, you got to compete with everybody else out there keeping quail. If you're doing quail tractors, a quail aviary, or at least a higher quality food, maybe giving them more space per bird, whatever it is you're doing that's unique... You need to be marketing that. 
And then once you get a customer that, let's say, is buying you know, X number of quail eggs a month from you, I think it's really easy to then say, oh, we do microgreens. Can I give you a sample? And then don't give them an, you know, an eighth ounce because they're not a chef. And we don't do those chefs anyway. We're not going to get into that today. They're not going to put a little tiny bit of it on the side of their plate next to the sauce that they've, you know, to make it look pretty. And even your home cook foodie who would do that, they don't cook like that all the time. So you wouldn't be able to sell to them all the time. Give them enough and say, you know, do you eat salads? Yes. Okay. What I'd like you to do then is the next time you make a salad, just add this to it and see what it does for the salad. And don't be surprised if they come back, oh, that was great. And you could say, I sell X for $5 or two for 10, you know, whatever it is. And then you add that on. I will tell you that we had a real advantage with duck eggs because you get chicken eggs from everybody and their mother. And while not as common, plenty of people sell quail eggs around here. Um, the duck eggs were unique. The duck eggs were substantial. We had a lot going with the story. So kind of generalizing this, and this is, again, we talked about this yesterday. I like absolute definitions. Absolute definitions are simple, easy to understand, and nothing else really needs to be said. It's not nothing else more can be, but nothing else needs to be said. So my absolute definition of sales, transfer of belief. That's it. That's an absolute definition of sales. If I have something... And you believe in it. I believe that it's the best thing for you. And I transfer my belief to you, assuming that it's fairly priced and you have the money and I was right about it being right for you. You will buy it. You'll buy it. Because now you believe that it's the right thing for you. And if you can afford it, you're going to buy it. Done. Marketing, telling your story. Viral marketing, getting other people to tell your story. Establishing a market is about telling your story sufficiently to get people to do business with you and then tell other people your story. And that's how most of our business came. We would get a customer. That customer was seeing a chiropractor. The chiropractor would say, you know, like, what are you doing with your diet? And they would, because chiropractors work on people with their diet. The person says, well, I've just added duck eggs. Really, that's interesting. Why? Tells the chiropractor. Chiropractor looks it up and goes, hey, this is a valid thing. They are better for you than chicken eggs. And they're pastured and where are you getting them from? Oh, so then the chiropractor started telling his customers about us. So we started getting phone calls from people. My chiropractor said there's a place in Hazel. We looked it up. It must be you. Yeah, we're that place. Can I get duck eggs? Yes. And it ended up being eventually, can I get duck eggs? We can put you on a list. And, and, and But then we added restaurants. So we went and we sampled restaurants. And we didn't take a restaurant a dozen eggs. You take a chef a dozen eggs, what's he going to do with them? He can't even put anything on his menu as a special with it. Because it's it's either going to, like, no one's going to buy it, and then it doesn't matter. But if it's any interest in it, you know, it's going to sell out in a day. So we take him, like, four dozen eggs. I say, do something with them. Just do something with it. Just try it. See how your customers like it. Well, I'm not sure what I would do. Do you sell a burger? Yeah, offer them for a dollar add-on to your burgers as a, as a, a sunny-side-up duck egg. Okay, we try that. And the guy called back, hey, um, yeah, uh, people love that. He goes, I, you know, the one guy's like, I, I gave them, a, like when somebody said they weren't sure, I told the server to, like, to ask them if they would even consider it. And if they said yes, I said, I want you to try it. We'll give it to you for free. If you don't like it, we'll give you a new burger. 
And people were like, I'm coming back for another one of those. How do I get another? Like, it was on. So we'd get that restaurant. And, and so we, any product, you're going to have to be creative to that product, but you're going to have to tell your story, sell value, and get aggressive with going out there. But the market you're after is food, right? So that market's established. It's a niche that you're going into. And so as far as exactly the mechanics behind what we did, it's in that presentation. It's on YouTube. I'll look it up for you today and put a link in the show notes. Hey, Jack, I was wondering if you could recommend a knife set uh, for just basic home use in the kitchen. Uh, background is we have a just a real simple generic knife set that's uh, kind of on its last leg, and I have been able to get my wife not to leave knives in the sink and hand wash them and dry them and put them back, so she's committed to taking care of the knives and keeping them sharp. Uh but we've we've used this one, and we we really do a lot of stuff in the kitchen. Uh, our, our have a fairly medium sized budget, uh, two hundred dollars and under. I know you knives can get expensive fast, but was wondering if there's something in that range that you would recommend. Anyway, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, so I probably put more time into working on this than I did for anything else in this episode. Because uh, it's a totally legitimate question, and the reality is most knife sets are not the best you can do with your money. If you just go out and buy like a you know the block with the knives in it, though I'm going to give you an option for that. But I started digging through, and the two manufacturers that immediately sprung to mind for me were both German Wurstoff uh, and J.A. Hankels, and. After I looked at what was available and what I could do for you in the 200-ish dollar range, uh, I, I came down with, with J.A. Hankels. I'm going to warn you that as I go through this, I will sound like a J.A. Hankels sales representative uh, that actually knows his shit, and I probably could go out and rep their product now for them uh, with a couple hours of research today. Though I'd probably be a lot more honest with you than, than most reps would be. So the problem that Hankels has with their reputation, is that they make so many different classes of knives. But here's the main ones. They make knives in Germany, which is what they're known for, and in Germany they make both forged and stamped steel knives. They make knives in Spain that they also make both forged and stamped steel knives. The knives made in Spain, in my opinion, having examined them enough over time and now understanding through the research today what I was looking at and the differences of them, are made probably as good as the knives made in Germany. In general, though, they make their higher-end brand stuff in Germany. And, and, a, and sometimes the brand differential is a type of steel, a type of handle, a certain pattern, Uh, but sometimes it's the name on the blade. It, it's just, you know, they charge more because some people want to pay more. And they're going to pay higher labor uh, rates in Germany than Spain. A lot of that's mitigated a little more than before because of EU, but even still now, in general, wages in Germany are higher than wages in Spain, uh, even with the equalization of the EU. It's similar to the fact that wages in Texas are lower than wages in California. Right and for the same type of job, uh, specifically the west coast of California versus uh, uh, the urban, more urban areas, outlying areas of the metroplex and things like that in Texas. 
just simple. And cost of living is lower, and that's why the wages are lower. That's funny how that works. Um, so you can move from California to Texas, take a pay cut, and live a better life. Same type of thing, Spain versus Germany. Then they also have knives that are made in China and Thailand. They do have some forged blades that come out of there, but the majority of the knives that come out of there are inexpensive knives, and they are stamped steel. Stamped steel is not necessarily bad, but I prefer a forged steel knife. And again, I'm trying to keep this knife set under $200 for you. Now, as I've examined sets that come in like a, a wood block, the place that I see manufacturers fluff up the number of knives and cut back the quality of the knife is the steak knives. They'll put four to eight steak knives in there, and they may be okay steak knives, but they'll go to their lower-end steak knives so that they can keep the total price to the price points. So the price points they try to hit, and I've looked across all the manufacturers, 49 bucks. 79 bucks, 99 bucks, 149 bucks, 199 bucks. Once you go above that, there's a little bit of effort to maintain a price point of like 229 to 249, but people start pricing their shit based on the fact that a higher end customer is going to buy these knives, so we're going to charge whatever we need to charge. And they don't try to hit these consumer mind numbers as much. Okay? So. When I looked at that, I would find a $200 set by Hankels or Worstoff or something. And when I actually looked at what was in it, and I look at the steak knives, they take a $200 knife set, but they have a $15 steak knife set in it. And then when you start breaking it down and what it is, and do you really want to buy their shears, and how much are you paying for that hunk of wood, I've determined that you will do better if you wanted a match set picking and choosing and buying individual knives. And if you go from, you go with a quality manufacturer like Hankel's, and you want to maintain that. Because I use mostly Shun knives and Cutco knives. So, you know, I can't build you a set of knives with Shun uh, premium knives because, you know, it's $160 bucks for a chef's knife. You know, $149 for a Sentoko knife. I, so I can't, I can't hit your number. So finding the quality manufacturer where I can hit your number, I came down on Hankel's. I am going to start... Um, The core of this set, and so real quick before I go on. So again, I need to reinforce what I just said about stamp versus forge and the location of the manufacturing. You'll see Hankel's knives always marketed as German steel. Sure, it's German steel. Thin, cheap German steel that they ship to Thailand to the production facility there. Okay? So understand that. So you can go out and you can find you know, a set of two... Santoco knives, a, a, a five and a seven inch blade at Albertsons for like 30 bucks at a grocery store or whatever, or on Amazon. You can go find a single five inch for like $15. Stamped steel, thin steel, made in Thailand. And you know what? It's a good $15 knife. But I want to do better for you with a $200 budget. And what you can't do and be fair in this evaluation, and this is what's hurt Hankel's and other manufacturers have done the same thing, is judge their premium knife on their low-end knife, and conversely, to be fair to yourself, you don't want to judge their low-end knife on their high-end knife. So we're going to start with a three-piece classic starter knife set. These are quality knives. They're 100% forged blades. They are manufactured in Spain. They consist of a chef's knife, a utility knife, and a paring knife. Honestly, for work in your kitchen, 
You can do anything with those three knives that you would ever need to do. Doesn't mean that you've got a full set yet. I'm going to try to complete your set here, but that's $100. If I go to the forged knives made in Germany and replicate these three knives, I can't get you where you want to be under $200. So I've settled there, and I haven't given any alternatives to it. I don't want to drop your quality below these three knives. These are high-quality, uh, high-carbon stainless steel. Again, they're manufactured in Spain, but they're made with German steel. And if you look at the fit and finish and quality of Henkel's knives made in Spain versus Germany, you cannot tell them apart. Now, you will be able to say, well, this one's better, but yeah, it's a better quality knife. They, they tell you that. All right, but the manufacturing level, what they do in Spain seems exceptional to me for this quality of knife. So I'm going to start there. You get your chef's knife, your utility knife, your paring knife. Now you've got that. Now, I want you to have with this a Santuco knife. And I'm going to go a little long on you here with the price to kind of push you up in quality. Um, because I think that if you're going to take your, your, your work in the kitchen seriously, you will probably end up using the Santoco knife more than the other three knives. It'll be this knife, then the chef's knife, then the, the paring knife, and then the utility knife in that order of how frequently they'll get used. So I am recommending, and you don't, everything's in the show notes, including the alternatives I'm going to give you with links to Amazon to get these. Uh, the Henkel's Hollow Edge Rocking Knife, and this is the one manufactured in Germany. This knife's $80, bucks, $79.95. This knife, if somebody wants a good Santoku-style knife, a good kind of all-around kitchen knife, this knife is as good as knives that sell for $160, $170. This knife is as good as my shuns that are $160. It doesn't look as cool. Right? It doesn't have a Damascus blade with a VG12 core and, and all that and the, the fancy handle. Performance-wise, this knife's right up there with them. I would If somebody just wanted a high-quality, do-everything kitchen knife other than a chef's knife, this is what I would recommend. So I'm recommending that one for you at $80. Okay? And let me give you the set as I would recommend you buy it, and then I'll give you the alternatives to bring it down in price. So now you've got... As far as I'm concerned, in your kitchen, a full set of knives. I do believe in having a high-quality set of steak knives to go with your kitchen knives. So that you do not have somebody taking a flat-edge, you know, straight-edge, non-serrated blade and cutting a steak on a ceramic plate with it and screwing it up. And the cheap-ass junk steak knives end up, you use them, they start to fall apart, the handles break off them... The blades don't really, they, you know, they, they just, they suck. Okay? So again, I'm shooting for stretching you a little past your budget here. 230 bucks. I'm recommending a set of the Henkel's Twin Gourmet uh, High Carbon Stainless Steel Steak Knives. A set of four is $50. These are the steak knives I own. You can't get me to pay more for a steak knife right now. Somebody someday may come out with something really special that I want. Maybe Patrick Rohrman will make a steak knife set. That's a different thing. That's a different level. From what I've looked at steak knives, these are as good as it gets. We have had a set for going on eight years of these knives now. And they still cut 
beautifully. The serrations are what protects the edge. No, you can't sharpen them. No, you will never need to sharpen them. So I'm recommending those. That's putting you at $230. Assume, you said keeping them sharp already. So assuming that you're doing that, you probably have a sharpening steel. If you don't and you wanted a sharpening steel and you wanted to keep it a Hankles, I have in the, the list of products a steel for like $18. So that puts you at $250, let's say, with the steel, just so everything matches because that's what you want. Otherwise, I don't care what steel you use. I don't even know who made my steel. I bought it so long ago. It works. It hasn't worn down. I don't care. I have not yet seen, unless you buy like a $4.99 steel at the grocery store or something like that, a shitty sharpening steel. So buy what you want, but that is there just for uh, shits and grins. Let's say we want to keep the price down. Okay. What I'm going to recommend you do then is I'm going to recommend you save your money on the Santuku knife. And I can cut your price on the Santuku knife by 35 what almost 40 bucks down to $35.70. I can do that for you. Anyway, I can bring your your total price here down to 185 bucks. And uh that is by getting you the oh, it's it's pretty much the same pattern It's the Hankel's Twin Signature Hollow Edge Rocking Santuku Knife, 7 inches. Um, it's got a little red engraved Hankel's thing on the logo on the handle that the other knives don't have because it's marking it as that, that line of knives. It is manufactured in Germany, uh, but it is a stamped steel knife. I would rather take you down to the stamped steel Then cut back on honestly on your on your steak knives. If you already have a great steak knife set, you don't want steak knives, you don't need them. Then you're you're under 200 bucks as it was anyway. You're at like 180. Right now you're at 180 if you go with this alternate knife. And what I've done is in my list for anybody that wants this to look at doing this set, um, I've put the one I recommend, and then the bullet point is indented for the alternate. So you could do that if you. The other way to look at this is, so I look at, like, what are we going to use the most here? And again, we're going to use probably this. Once you start using a Santuku knife, you're really going to like it, especially for chopping and things like that. It's kind of a hybrid between a chef's knife and a cleaver. And, and these, the ones that, that Hankels makes with this rocking pattern are really, really nice. Um, you could downgrade the steak knives. You just can't save as much money doing that. Um, but the... Um, the, the, like the 100 series steak knives, they call them. These are really nice knives too. They're not as nice, but they're 16 bucks for four. And, you know, they're a stamp steel. Uh, they are, they are made in China. That's the, that's the rub here. These aren't what you'd normally get from Hankel's, but this is Hankel's giving a Chinese manufacturer a spec and having them meet it. So you're taking a bigger hit on quality and you're saving less money because you're only saving 35 bucks versus 55 bucks, which is the way the other one works out. But you won't mind using these. I've seen these knives like my wife loves Kohl's and I've been in Kohl's with her and I saw them on sale and they were like $12.99 and I'm like, I can't believe it. Those are the knives you paid 50 bucks for. And when I pulled them out immediately, I knew it wasn't them. But I was looking at them going, 
This is still pretty nice. I almost bought a set, and I probably should have, just to have, like, when there's more than four people at the table. You guys got the cheaper knives because you're not trusted, right? Um, so you could cut your cost on either one of those, and it would be okay. So that's, that's what I would recommend you go that way. If you don't need steak knives, then buy the three-knife classic set and buy the high-end Santuku knife, and your kitchen will do anything you want it to do. And, and then if you ever decide you want a different knife and you want to keep kind of the pattern and things like that going, then you can always go to Henkel's. And now you know what you're looking for. Forged is your top quality, either Germany or Spain. And, and that's what you're looking for. And when you see a, a Henkel's knife and it's like a really nice looking knife and it's like 12 bucks, it's made in Thailand, it's made in China. And the big issues there, I'm not a China snob. I'm not, you know, whatever. When you look at the knives and you look across the back of them, they have a lot thinner of a blade and they just don't perform as well. They make good knives in China and Thailand, just not in this instance. And they're not even bad, they're just not as good. Okay, so then you know, it's okay to buy those knives, just know what you're buying. I have a cheap Hankel's Santuku that's from Thailand that was like, 11 bucks at Albertsons. It was a knife. I'm like, you know what? I can get that knife. I can let my wife use it. And that's one more knife for her to use and not touch my good knives because she doesn't respect knives. So that, that's, that's fine. That's what that knife's for. Now, I wanted an alternative um, for someone that's listening to this going, blah, 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 $200 for a set of knives. Jack, must be nice, but I don't have it. I'm broke. I'd like to have a nice set of knives. I am kind of blown away by the quality of this set that I'm going to mention here is like an alternative to everything. Uh, it's made by Amazon. It's Amazon Basics, so it's an OEM manufacturer. When I look at this knife set, I'm pretty sure it's basically an OEM of someone like a Hankel's or a Worstoff or something like that of their lower-end knives, but with a spec to maybe a little bit thicker of steel. Uh, it does it kind of it gets fluffed up with eight steak knives, though the steak knives look pretty decent. Now, I've never gotten my hands on this knife, but I checked out some reviews beyond just the Amazon reviews of this set. And you can tell a lot through looking at pictures and then reading reviews and seeing do things line up. It's got a utility knife. It's got a paring knife. It's got um, eight steak knives. It's got basically a boning knife, a santuku knife, a larger slicing knife, a serrated bread knife and a chef's knife and a set of shears, which are probably crap. Of course, I am a shear snob, right? I recommend the Red Yeti where when they had them, they don't have any more snout the Fiskers, uh, and they're cheap anyway. And a sharpening steel, which probably ain't the best sharpening steel. But you know how much all that costs? $65. bucks, 64 and free shipping. I would not buy this knife set at this point in my life because I own, you know, like cheap knives in my in my kitchen, other than the, the throwaway Dorothy allowed to use knives. Like, the cheapest knives in my kitchen are $120 knives. So I, I own those knives. They're already paid for. Buy once, cry once. But if I was where I was 30 years ago or 25 years ago when I was struggling and I needed to outfit my kitchen, this is probably as good as you can do for under $100 for a kitchen knife set. This, it's pretty impressive. If I had a second home like I used to, if I had a fishing cabin or something, and I wanted a good set of cutlery in there, and I didn't, I'm not going to go invest, you know, eight hundred, a thousand dollars in knives for that. I would buy this. 
And so if I were starting out, if I needed an extra set, if I was doing Airbnb with cabins and I wanted to put a nice set of cut, cut, cutlery in my kitchens and not be cheap and do dollar store crap, I, I'm just saying this set's worth looking at. I, I, I would buy a set to evaluate for you guys. I just can't justify $65 bucks on a set of knives. I don't. I absolutely do not need them. They would end up in the way. For storage... This one comes with a block set. The way I said to do the Henkel set, I would. I am in love with magnetic knife strips. I would find, and I don't care what brand you buy, find the ones that look and are the right size for what you want to do, put them up in your wall somewhere, save the drawer space, keep your knives there, and instead of using a block, save the counter space. Counter space to me is at a premium. So there you go. I hope that helps people, but... Um, Even if you're not looking at Hinkle's knives, it helps with these large manufacturers that are known for high quality and yet have demerits on them to be able to fi figure out what, what's your low end and what's, what about it makes it low end in price. And to be fair to them, here's why they have these knives. They're competing for retail space in stores like Kohl's, like grocery store gadget aisles. And they're talking to product managers and they say, well, you know, we want to put our knives in your store. Well, that, that product manager sees every every space that they put an item, every bit of shelf space, is something that's a commodity. It's a very valuable thing to them. And if the thing on that occupying that space doesn't sell, it's wasted. It's throwing money away. And they know their consumers, and they say, we, we don't sell $150 knives here. We sell $20 knives here. What do you got? So what, what stuff does is say, well, how many would you buy? And when they're talking to somebody like Walmart... And they say, initial order 20,000, they go, hold on. And then they build a product for that level. And then they sell it everywhere. And then the, the, the Wusthof or the Henkel's name sells that lower end product as, well, it is their product. And it probably is better than the average $15 knife. But it's not as good as their $80 knife, nor would you expect it to be if you understood the difference. So with knives and in many other things, When you look at these types of things, Hen and Rooster would be another knife manufacturer that you can, you know, they have a low end and a high end. Well, where's it made? What's it made out of? And how's it made? That's what you want to look at. But the, the set that I gave you, again, which is a, a three-piece starter set, a Santuco knife, that's where I'd build my core of kitchen knives no matter who I got them from. And, again, I think you'll find that a, a modest-sized Santuco knife, a, a seven-inch Santuco knife, will be the knife you pick up more than anything. You're, what they call a utility knife, what you're going to find that you love that for is certain work with vegetables and boning. You, you know, Larger boning cuts and things like that, those are just beautiful for, and your smaller utility knives for doing small boning and things like that, like uh, boning chicken thighs and stuff, and then intricate work. But you're going to reach for that Santuco chef's knife most of the time. All right, with that, we have one more. Let's go ahead and take that now. Hi, Jack. My friends and I are doing Thanksgiving for the first time this year. We all work full-time jobs and don't have time to babysit the bird. We were thinking of cooking it in the microwave. Turkey is 25 pounds of frosted. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Look, man, when you tell me you're going to put a 25-pound turkey in, in, in the oven, I don't know if you're trying to, to taunt me the way people taunt Stephen Harris or something, but I'm not going to take the bait if that's what it is. I almost just discarded this call, but I, I thought about the... Let's ignore the complete dumbass idea of putting a 25-pound turkey in a microwave oven. 
Let's just forget about it. And let's think about the actual problem here. You got a group of people who want a turkey and don't have all day to make a turkey on whatever day you're going to have turkey. And again, even though this was supposedly for Thanksgiving, we're coming up on Christmas here. What would I advise? Number one, if you already have a turkey, this is not a good option. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying a pre-cooked turkey. Uh, my niece-in-law and my nephew uh, had a, a, a Friendsgiving uh, the Monday of Thanksgiving week because they actually decided to go on vacation for Thanksgiving. They went down to, uh, I think they went to uh, Puerto Rico or, I, I don't know, Jamaica. They went to Jamaica, right? So, you know, they're busy people. They have their own business and stuff like that. So they, they focused on making all the sides, and they just went to, to Albertsons and got a pre-cooked turkey. So, I mean, I would rather do that than, than half-ass a turkey. Um, the other thing, and one of the things that you end up getting a really good result with that I've experienced anyway, buying from grocery stores is smoked turkeys because they're obviously cooked, but they also have more flavor. They're never dried out. They always taste really good. Um, one year, uh, the Tom Thumb near us, we went in. I don't. What it was is this store, it finally did go out of business. when we lived down in Arlington when I started the show. And it was on the corner right down the road from us, and... The, they were overpriced. So the reason you would go in there, it was like going to a convenience store that had everything because there was never a line. Uh, unfortunately, about half the time, you still wish you'd went somewhere else because even without a line, the the, uh, the clerk was so lethargic that you stood there waiting longer for the few things that you picked up than if you'd gone to the grocery store and stood in the line. Uh, but that would, would be would lure you into that place. So we're in there one day for something like that, and it was like you know two days after Thanksgiving. It was like Saturday of Thanksgiving week, and I looked, and they had twelve to fourteen pound smoked turkeys for nine dollars a piece. For nine dollars a piece, no limit to get rid of them. I bought like four, and that was because I only had so much freezer space. And they were good. I mean, I know, yes, it's mass-produced meat and all, but come on. Like, if if I if you tell me that and I find a Dorito in your house, I'm going to kick your ass, right? People that are 100%, fine, I respect you, but when, like, you're eating Doritos and and, 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 and Cheetos, and then you're going to get on me because I ate a turkey from, you know, Purdue, go piss off. Um, so that would be another option is pre-cooked. The next is a 25-pound turkey is a big bird. So, like I said for the Thanksgiving show, Break it down. Debone the breast, cook the breast, and the leg quarter separately. Use the core to make stock. And I think that people don't understand that you're probably better off pre-cooking your bird anyway. For some reason, I get stuck on tradition, and I always make my turkey on Thanksgiving Day. The number one way that people screw up a turkey, other than undercooking it or overcooking it, is cutting it when it's too hot, even if you've boned it out. The best thing you can probably do is make your turkey a week in advance to several days in advance and let it be completely cool and then cut it to eating size and warm it up, you know, in the oven, warm it up even in the microwave at that point, what have you, you know, take it out in the morning, slice it up dead cold. It'll slice beautifully. It won't run any juices out of it. Put it in one of those foil pans and put it in the oven long enough to warm it up. Take it out in the morning, though, let it come up to room temperature so you're not throwing it in there right before you eat ice cold. And you'll no one will know that that's what you've done, and it will taste just absolutely fantastic. Um, your, your dark meat will carve nicer. Your white meat will carve nicer. That's what I recommend 
coming up on Christmas. I know a lot of people kind of do a repeat, Turkey Day 2.0 for Christmas, what you do. Um, but th that can be done with so many large cuts of things. Like a brisket, brisket is fine reheated. You know, I, I think we've come to this, this compulsion in our society today because we're spoiled because we can have anything we want. The food should come from the oven to the table. And then sometimes that really is a detriment. And turkey is one of those things. This is why, have you ever wondered this? You, you, you cook a turkey for, for Thanksgiving. And the white meat is kind of dry. But if you cooked a big turkey and your family's not that big, you kind of took the white meat off one side of the turkey and the dark meat off one side of the turkey. Or if you're like my family, you've almost wiped out the dark meat and you've eaten one, one breast half. And then so you throw the turkey, clear out the refrigerator, and you shove the turkey in there, and you don't cut up the other breast half. And then when you're doing leftover turkey... You, you take that breast off and you cut it and it's all juicy. You're like, what the hell? That's why. The, the alternative is you cut it up, put it in the refrigerator. And I don't mean cut it off in a section. You cut it up in slices, you put it in the refrigerator, and the next day it's bone dry. Because you opened it up, you opened up the pores, and you let all the juice out, and the bad got worse. You let that sucker cool all the way down. Holds that juice, and in turkey breast should be moist and delicious. If you microwave a turkey, you deserve to be beaten with a turkey. I'm sorry, that's just, no, we don't do that. All right, with, you, almost, you almost harassed me, but you didn't. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap the show up today. Uh, I want to remind you just real quick, you can help support the show by joining the MSB. That's all I'll say about that. And I we talked about some stuff you can get on Amazon today and all, but you can always help this show out by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You spell it exactly like it sounds, the letter T, spaz, like a spaz from school when you were a kid, dot com. And uh, so I have an item of the day every day for you. Today's item of the day is the Perfect Cook Digital Read Instant Thermometer. We're back to cooking again. If you're cooking a turkey, you need a thermometer. There might be some other ones good for you to use. I brought this around today because I brought it around a few months ago, and I was like, it was like back in August, and I'm like, it's $12.99. Usually they're like $22. Bucks. So I looked it up today because somebody, somebody's wife hit me up on Facebook through Facebook Messenger said, my husband wants an instant read to mom, or he said to go to your website. I can't figure your site out. What should I get? And I'm like, you should get this thing right here. And I sent it there, and I looked, when I looked it up, I'm like, oh, yeah, I said it was on sale, and it permanently is marked down now to $13, bucks, $12.99. Um, number one thing people do to screw up steaks overcook them. Uh, number one things people do to screw up poultry is undercook it, cut it open, see that it's undercooked, put it back in the oven. Get one of these and you won't do that anymore. I won't beat a dead horse with that one, even though PETA says I'm not supposed to say that anymore. I will say this. I think I figured out why Perfect Cook dropped their price. They have a new wireless meat thermometer with two probes, like where you could have a turkey and you stick it in the oven and you can look and see what the temperature is without opening the door. It's 30 bucks. Perfect Cook makes good stuff. This thing's probably good. I've ordered one, but I haven't got my hands on it yet. It's in the PS if you want to check it out. And remember, you can always help support TSP by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy. It is that time of the year when people are spending lots of money on stuff. If you spend it through TSPAS, you spend the same And you help us. So please consider us when you're doing your holiday online shopping or any online shopping. That brings us to our song of the day. We are in one-hit wonder week. 
And uh, this is a song that I bet almost everybody, especially people that like country music, has heard. But I bet you, when I tell you the name of the song, you're going to think, that's not a one-hit wonder, because that's Reba McIntyre. Whether you like her or you don't like her, I mean, Reba McIntyre's not a one-hit wonder. She's a multi-hit semi-wonder. I mean, I have a love-not-love relationship with Reba McIntyre. Things I like about her, things I don't. Uh, She's been an actress, and she's had a lot of number one, top ten hits. Uh, And the song is The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. But the song was originally done by Vicki Lawrence all the way back, I think, in the 60s. And uh, this is an interesting storyline in this song, if you've never heard it before, never really paid attention to it. The the concept is, and it's pretty, it's kind of country of the time with simple stories, right? So a guy goes to the bar, and his buddy, Andy, tells him, Hey, your wife isn't out of town. She's cheating with this other dude. And... So guy gets pissed, and he's like, hey, don't lose your head. The truth is, I've been with her myself. And uh, so the guy storms out, and then Andy, drunk, walks back to his place. And you know the line basically says, this guy, Andy's not exactly a great guy. He didn't have a lot of friends. He just lost one. Pissed off dude goes and gets a shotgun and comes looking for his wife at this cabin, but when he gets there, Andy's laying on the floor dead, you know, pull blood. He runs out, sees a police car running by, so he fires a shotgun, not very smart. Of course, he had to move the story along quickly, right? It's a song, you only get so much time to do it with. To flag the guy down, the cop immediately says, why'd you do it? They already knew that it happened. And they push him through a make-believe trial and hang him, kill him. And you can't trust the judge in the town. He's got bloodstains on his hand. I always found this song to be a bit bullshit. Because what you learn in the last verse of the song is that the person singing the song is, is, is his sister. And she shot Andy. And she shot her brother's cheating wife, too. She killed both of them. But when I look at all of that, I think, well, you killed your brother. You killed your brother because you killed these two people. And then when they went to this make-believe trial that you're talking about, you kept your mouth shut and let your brother swing from the gallows rather than saying you were the one that did it. But we're at least led to believe by the narrative here that some level of corruption exists here. And so the tale of caution that I've always seen with this song is You can say that we put systems of justice in place, but if the people within those systems are corrupt, then the systems of uh, themselves are corrupt, and therefore justice cannot be served. And we know that when government takes a monopoly on anything, no matter what it is, we will have corruption, we will have failures, we will have a lack of, uh, of, of effort to do the best job possible, mistakes will be made, And when those mistakes are made with human lives, we have a real problem. Anyway, it was kind of a cool song. I always liked it, uh, but I always just found it kind of facetious that this woman blamed the judge, the sheriff, right, um, the wife that she killed, the, 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 the friend Andy. She blamed everybody except the person that actually did pull the trigger and take lives and end up indirectly killing three people instead of just two herself. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
his way home from Candletop. Been two weeks gone, and he thought he'd stop at Webb's and have him a drink before he went home to her. Andy Wolow said hello, and he said hi. What's doing? Wolow said, sit down. I've got some bad news. It's gonna hurt. Said I'm your best friend, and you know that's right. But your young bride ain't home tonight. Since you've been gone, she's been seeing that Amos boy Seth. Well, he got mad and he saw red. And Andy said, boy, don't you lose your head? 'Cause to tell you the truth, I've been with her myself. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they hung an innocent man. Well, don't trust your soul and old backwoods southern lawyer. 'Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his hands. Well, Andy got scared and left the bar, walking on home 'cause he didn't live far. See, Andy didn't have many friends and he just lost him one. Brother thought his wife must have left town, so he went home and finally found the only thing Papa had left him, and that was a gun. Then he went off to Andy's house, slipping through the backwoods quiet as a mouse. Came upon some tracks too small for Andy to make. He looked through the screen at the back porch door, and he saw Andy lying on the floor in a puddle of blood. And he started to shake. Well, the Georgia Patrol wasn't making their rounds, so he fired a shot just to flag 'em down. And a big belly sheriff grabbed his gun and said, "Why'd you do it?" And the judge said, "Guilty in a make-believe trial." Slapped the sheriff on the back with a smile, said, "Supper's waiting at home, and I gotta get to it." That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they hung an innocent man. Well, don't trust your soul and old backwoods southern lawyer. 'Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his hands. Well, they hung my brother before I could say the tracks he saw while on his way to Andy's house and back that night were mine. Had never left town, and that's one body that'll never be found. See, little sister, don't miss when she aims her gun. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. Oh, oh, oh. that's the night that they hung an innocent man. Uh huh. Well, don't trust your soul and old backwoods southern lawyer. 'Cause the judge in the town got.